the right way to assess China's power is not simply with respect to the United States, but with respect to the United States, its allies, and participants in the international order who don't want the rules changed. Welcome to Flashpoint. I'm your host, Andrew Holland. This week's podcast is with Corey Shockey, Director of Foreign and Defense Policy Studies at the American Enterprise Institute. She is the author of Safe Passage, The Transition from British to American Hegemony, published in 2018. We had her on the show to discuss lessons from her book about the growing contest between China and the United States for power in East Asia and around the world. She's one of our industry's most prolific podcasters, and her comments are always original and insightful. I was particularly struck by her thought that the problem may not be the growing strength of China, but instead the increasing weakness and insecurity of China's governing class. I'd encourage you to buy her book. It is a great read. And now, let's get into the show. Corey Shockey, welcome to the podcast. What a great pleasure, Andrew. Good to be with you. It is a pleasure to be with you. So the talk in Washington circles these days, as you know, is all about great power competition. The age of fighting terrorists is over. We now have to prepare to deter great powers and of course, China especially. So we'll talk today about China and you wrote this great book, Safe Passage, The Transition from British to American Hegemony. And I wonder if you could just start by saying, are there any lessons for today that we can learn from the century or more that you talk about in your book. Yeah, thank you so much for giving me the chance to talk about the book. What got me started writing it was actually the potential lessons for today. Uh, Because when I started writing Safe Passage, I thought I was going to be writing a book about a number of great power transitions that occurred peacefully. And I didn't realize until I started doing the research for the book that there's actually only one. All the others occur by violence. The one that occurs peacefully is between Britain and the United States in the late 19th century. And what makes it peaceful is that the U.S., because of its westward expansion, had come to have an imperial mindset. And Britain, because of its slow constitutional expansion, of the franchise came to be a democracy. So these two countries looked similar to each other and different to everybody else. And that made the stakes for their transition much lower. So one of the main lessons I take away from the Anglo-American case is how important ideology is in the trust that allows for a peaceful transition. And that should, of course, worry you very much about the potential for a Sino-American transition, because unless as China continues to rise, it liberalizes so that the United States doesn't fear handing over an international order that works to American security and prosperity to China, you should anticipate it happening by violence. Interesting. So 
maybe for our listeners, we should go just kind of almost into the basic IR theory here. What do we mean when we say hegemonic transition, hegemonic decline? Do you think the U.S. is in hegemonic decline? Or is this just the customary navel gazing that goes on too often in Washington? And, <laughs> you know, do we, are we, do we worry too much or, or, you know, or do we have to really fight back here? So my favorite article ever written about international relations was actually written by the journalist James Fallows in 2009 when he came back to the United States after five or six years as the Atlantic's correspondent in Beijing. And it has some boring title, How America Can uh, Revive Foreign Policy or something like that. But his argument is really interesting and important. It looks at the role of the Jeremiah. You will, of course, recall Jeremiah from Torah always fears he is disappointing God. And that Mm. is why he's beloved of God. And Fallows uses that metaphor to talk about the fact that the United States very often thinks it's failing. And that's the key to its success. Because we worried about the German Wirtschaftswunder in the 1950s, the recovery of German industrial capacity and what that would mean. We worried about Japan Inc. in the 1970s and that the way that they were organizing their economy was so far superior to the sloppy mess of ours. Mm. And we worry about an authoritarian China intimidating its neighbors attempting to change the rules of order in ways that are zero-sum beneficial to China. And that would be a big change to the positive-sum outcomes of the order that the United States and its allies built after World War II. Let me answer the question that you posed, which is, what's a hegemon and what's hegemonic transition? Yeah, yeah, great. A hegemon is the dominant power in the international order, the one that sets and enforces the rules. It's not always the richest power. It's not always even the strongest power. Mm-hmm. It's the one that's willing to fight for the rules of order and to orchestrate them. And that power has been the United States since 1945, right? right. Uh, we're the one who created multinational institutions like the United Nations and the World Trade Organization, security relations. We extended security guarantees formally to allies and informally to a bunch of other countries that we were worried about this sovereignty and security of. And we've enforced those rules. My favorite example of it is the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, which the United States was a motive force for negotiating. We signed the agreement, but have never submitted it to the Senate for ratification. And yet we not only abide by its rules, we enforce those rules on other countries. And and vigorously enforce it too. Absolutely. The South China Sea stuff that you read about in the newspapers is the United States enforcing a treaty we have not ratified ourselves. So that I think is a measure of what a hegemon is. And, and your other terrific question, which is, is the United States a declining hegemon? 
I also think that's a terrific question. It's one of those terrifying questions that sounds so simple, but it trips us experts up all over the place. Right. I think the answer is yes, the U.S. is declining in relative power, but no, it is not declining as a hegemonic power. Hmm. So let me try and explain yeah, what explain I mean that by that. Bit. Yeah. So in 1945, the U.S. had 50% of global GDP. We have about 20% now, mm-hmm. right? So clearly that is, objectively speaking, a relative decline. But the reason I don't think it's, it shows the decline of the U.S. as a hegemonic power is because we created an international order where countries like us who support the rules of that order are its overwhelming majority. So Mm -hmm. John Eikenberry, who I think is the foremost theoretician of the liberal international order, Mm -hmm. argues that the order itself will be supreme when it no longer requires the United States to enforce it. And we're clearly not there yet. But if you're worried about a rising China, the right way to assess China's power is not simply with respect to the United States, but with respect to the United States, its allies, and participants in the international order who don't want the rules changed. And that continues to be an overwhelming number of countries that we have mostly lost power relative to our friends and allies, not relative to China. This is an important, interesting thing. The way that you define hegemonic power here is really not a military power, because we actually had a podcast a couple months ago with David Kilcullen, where he talked about his new book, The Dragons and the Snakes, basically how everybody else is catching up to the United States militarily, and that the Western way of war is, is no longer the dominant way of war. And I thought that was persuasive, but actually it's not necessarily what you're arguing here is that it's not necessarily the most important part is whether or not you can win wars. It's whether or not you can get everybody to go along with you and go along with the rules that you set. Right. I think that's exactly right, Andrew. I have a lot of admiration for Dave Kilcullen, but my rebuttal to the argument in his book, which I promise I've told him right to his face, (laughs) is that the reason the Western way of war is not the choice of our adversaries is because we are so dominant in the practice of it. Exactly. We have pushed the challenges to the margins of the conflict spectrum. And that's a fabulous measure of our success. We should be thrilled that our adversaries have to try and corrupt our elections, uh, use information warfare, because that means they're not invading Poland. (laughs) And that's a big trade up from where we were 70 years ago. Yeah, Um, exactly. To your broader point, I think that's right. I think that What a rules-based international order has done is created outcomes that if you voluntarily join the system and comply by its rules, you become safer and more prosperous. And so 
it's not every prior hegemon, every dominant power before the United States had to spend a lot more effort enforcing the rules than the United States does. The genius of the American order is that so many other countries want it Mm. and none of them could create an order without American power, but all of them in a variety of ways help support and contribute to that power. So just to take one contemporary example, the country of Zambia has just defaulted on its international financial obligations. It can't pay its debts. And China is attempting to break the existing rules and force Zambia to repay Chinese state-owned companies before everybody else. Reason Zambia is most of those debts, or, or a lot of those debts, are to Chinese companies and Chinese, and even the Chinese government. Yes, many of them are. But the the international rules for how a defaulting sovereign is that you pay everyone equally. You mm. can't politically put some countries at the head of the line, and it's not just the United States that favors that rule. Every foreign investor favors that rule, right? So China is isolated and trying to force this change. And that's what's so attractive about the American order, that we didn't wring the last ounce of advantage for ourselves. We created rules that benefit everybody, including us. And so that's a huge part. It's an elegance of design. I don't know if you ever saw the 1954 movie, The Cane Mutiny. Yeah, it has, sure. this, it has this great line in it that the American Navy was designed by geniuses to be run by idiots. <laughs> and I love that so much as a general statement about American governance. And it's also true of how we designed the international order, not just in 1945, but in all sorts of ways since then. The institutions are remarkably adaptable to new challenges, which is why the General Agreement on Trades and Tariffs becomes the World Trade Organization, why NATO that was formed to protect against a Soviet invasion is still valuable to its members, even though there's no Soviet Union. All of which to say, though, there's a real argument to be made that this is why the last four years of America first policies and rhetoric has been quite damaging to the to the American thought process here. We've taken a chainsaw to a lot of these orders. You talked about the the WTO. I mean, the Trump administration has done everything they can to to undermine the WTO court system, not nominating people. And NATO, of course, I have it on good authority that if Trump had been reelected, we may not have stayed in NATO. That's why this is, it is durable and resilient, but also when the architect here doesn't show as much support for it or actually wants to take a chainsaw to it, that's why it is dangerous and damaging to that system. I absolutely agree with you, Andrew. I am not sure the international order could have been sustained through a second Trump administration. That it's a beautifully designed, elegantly designed system that serves our interests and the interests of so many others. And it was for me genuinely shocking 
to have the leader of the free world neither know nor care that this is the best deal you can get. And if you break this order, everything is going to get harder and costlier for the United States to achieve. And I think going back to Zambia, it's almost one of these things that, that we're lucky it's probably not in the Fox News headlines because I'm sure our president would have said something like, well, that makes sense. We should get American money back first. So that's why it's important. (laughs) (laughs) I almost said, don't give him any ideas. (laughs) I don't think we get in that far into the West Wing on on this podcast, but but maybe so. (laughs) But but let's talk a little bit here about the, the Chinese challenge, because it is clear that the Chinese have looked at this liberal international order and said, well, this isn't designed for us. This isn't the right thing for us, and this isn't the right place for us. They've set up this new Chinese infrastructure bank. They've set up the Belt and Road Initiative kind of as an echo of the Marshall System, the Marshall Plan. And so this is a real challenge to the international order, and you know, countries have shown that they want to go along with them. Do you see it as a challenge, or, or should we just build them into it? I absolutely see it as a challenge. And what makes it so difficult is that the Chinese are abiding by the international order where it advances their interests, Mm -hmm. right? But not where it doesn't. So they won't acknowledge the legitimacy of the International Court of Arbitration for supporting the Philippines against China. Mm -hmm. on an issue of disputed territorial waters. But they want World Trade Organization cases that go in their favor to be respected. And some of the things they have done, like the Asian Infrastructure Bank, are really good ideas. There's a huge need for more infrastructure and that the Chinese are willing to, to fund it. We ought to be celebrating. We should have joined. We should have encouraged And we should have brought the tools of free societies to shape the organization. Transparency in lending practices, protections, typical international protections in terms uh, when defaults occur, Mm -hmm. transparency of terms of the loans. I'm really impressed with the way several middle powers, in particular Japan, have Mm -hmm. moved to shore up the international order and to address this shortfalls that some of the Chinese initiatives like the AIIB and the Belt and Road Initiative also seem designed for. So the Japanese and Indians have created an investment fund for infrastructure to compete with the BRI and they have made the terms transparent and they have included standards of performance, right? Uh, regulations on construction and things like that, and climate effects of projects. So they are competing by using the tools of free societies to protect and advance free societies. And I think that's our best strategy for managing a rising China to challenge what they are doing that we think is pernicious with better alternatives and to to force them to compete on the rule of law, on transparency, because that's actually how you bring them, maybe kicking and screaming, but bring them into the existing order. 
And and that was the idea of of things like the Trans-Pacific Partnership as well and, and stuff exactly. like this. To, exactly. To build, build a coalition of like-minded countries to, to try and, and set that system into place and, and even bring the Chinese into it. You know, I, I do think it's interesting recently, I saw Xi said something about, yeah, maybe we would join the TPP, which, you know, it would be great. And, and, and I, I think the U.S. should, should rejoin it as well. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> but uh, could it, to kind of go back to the beginning of this, you had said that the, the key to, that you found in, in your book was the ideological convergence between the U.S. and the British as hegemonic power transitioned. And so we had made this bet, I think, 20 years ago that bringing China into the international order would help liberalize their government. Obviously, that hasn't worked. It's in fact right. seemed to hammer in a, a rigid authoritarianism. And, and even over the last year, I'd argue that it's gotten worse with the crackdowns in Hong Kong and threats against Taiwan, even weird threats against Australia and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Like a brittleness that perhaps wasn't there before. How do, how do we avoid conflict here? How, if we're not seeing them come towards us ideologically, for now, we seem to avoid our ideological move towards authoritarianism. How do we avoid conflict? Uh, are there other lessons that, that perhaps are a little bit more optimistic than the takeaway? Yeah. So let me start by saying that if you want to avoid conflict, you always can right? Yeah. By surrender. Takes two, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I think that's the wrong way to, sure. for us to think about it. And I know that's not what you were saying. So yeah, I, yeah. I didn't mean to, to fire on your ramparts. All I was trying to say was that we need to think about it in terms of how do we prevent the Chinese from choosing conflict? Sure. And one way is to be very clear about what we will and will not tolerate. And another, my favorite book about warfare is Jeffrey Blaney's Causes of War. Hmm. And he does a magnificent job uh, evaluating all of the different theories for what causes war. And he comes to the conclusion that what actually causes war is somebody thinking they can win. Right, right. right. <laughs> um, it's not any more complicated than that. Yeah. And the United States banding together with its allies is such an overwhelming force relative to what China could bring that I don't think there's a very strong likelihood of conflict with China as long as we and our friends continue holding hands and defending our interests. But I would also say that I'm much more optimistic than most other people <laughs> about change in Good. China. <laughs> yeah. Okay, good. And that, that's the interesting. reason is I do not think Hegel has yet been disproved that as people grow more prosperous, they become more demanding political consumers. Yeah. And, you know, we in the West have to some extent lost confidence that our values are universal. But the two governments who desperately believe it are the governments of China and Russia. Because they're afraid of their own population. If you didn't think that the Chinese people were going to try and throw the CCP out of power, you wouldn't have to establish a repressive surveillance state. 
-hmm. And yet they're doing it. If you didn't think the people of Hong Kong wanted individual liberty and responsive government, you wouldn't have to extend the national security law there. Yeah. So I think the Chinese government is so fearful that their own people want the choice that we have the luxury of taking for granted. But the thing that I am most worried about is that in the work of Michael Beckley and several other really good China analysts, they show that we've convinced ourselves that the Chinese economy is a stampeding juggernaut. Mm -hmm. And the work of Michael Beckley and Dan Blumenthal and some other people suggests that may not be true. And that we are so worried about the problems of a successful China that we're not looking carefully enough and not afraid enough of the problems of a failing China. Yeah. And those problems, I think, are the best explanation for the Chinese behavior that you described. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, perhaps the one-child policy has led to they're one of the fastest aging populations in the world, and they're perhaps running up to the end of their period of extensive growth, bringing more people into the workforce, they need to figure out a way to grow intensively, get, get better at increasing their productivity and such like that. Uh, it is Absolutely. Their productivity is incredibly low and stalled. If you look at the amount of investment it takes to produce GDP outcomes in China, it's incredibly inefficient. And so I, I think it looks like Chinese, the Chinese economy began stalling not long after they stopped opening up. That is, when they started repressively cracking down in about 2009, and when they stopped opening their markets and such, that's when the economy begins to start hitting a rough patch. And so yeah. Hal Brands has a terrific piece in Bloomberg uh, recently about looking at Sino-American competition and that we have been making two fundamental mistakes in looking at China. One is we are projecting the present into the future as a straight line of continued success uh, for China. And that's a common mistake of futurologists and uh, one we should know better than. And the other is believing that you have solidarity in the Chinese leadership. And we don't know that to be true. And our track record for anticipating what's happening inside closed societies is actually terrible. (laughs) My favorite example of it is the CIA in the early 1950s projecting when the Soviet economy would overtake the United States. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it it was never going to happen. Right, the metrics that we use, China's GDP, for example, it doesn't tell, GDP per capita is actually a much, it tells you how rich people are, as opposed to what an economy is producing. So we need better metrics. And Michael Beckley is doing a lot from Tufts, is doing a lot of interesting work on this. Well, this is, I don't know whether this is an optimistic or a pessimistic take on this, but it's, it's perhaps a, a take that is against the common wisdom. And I think that's, that's a really important uh, place to end on and think through of, of ways to go forward and, and things to look more at. 
Corey Shockey, thanks for being with us. Where can people find more about your book? Ah, well, let's see. They could go to the American Enterprise Institute website and look for me or Harvard University Press who published it. Thank you, Andrew, right. for the pleasure of this conversation. It, it was great. Uh, thank you. And, and we'll hope to see you back in, in D.C., you know, soon as, as all of this COVID uh, stuff ends. Thank you, my friend. Thank you, Corey.